0: Welcome to episode 88 of the AAEM Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. AAEM RSA will be the advocacy association for emergency medicine trainees by advocating for our practice environments, patient access to quality emergency care through education, and by elevating future leaders in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Caitlin Parks, a resident at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as current AAM RSA board member at large, speaks with Dr. Corey Slovis. Today, Drs. Parks and Slovis discuss shocking asystole, the pick crew approach, and when to give antiarrhythmics.
1: Hi, I'm Caitlin Parks. I'm a PGY3 at Washington University in St. Louis, and I'm here with Dr. Corey Slovis, who needs no introduction, and we're going to talk about um, some of the recent EMS articles in uh, 2022.
2: Well, Caitlin, thank you very much for having me.
1: So first off, in kind of reviewing some of the content and the articles that you have chosen, um, I want to talk about empiric shocking of asystole. To me, this is kind of practice changing. And I'm also curious how you implement this in an EMS service.
2: Well, I think you've picked up on one of the more practice changing, somewhat provocative articles that I was planning to present. Uh, Many, many years ago, shocking was part of the protocol in asystole for many systems, including my own at Grady Hospital in Atlanta. And then there was some suggestion that Asystolic patients who were shocked, and this was uh, done in dog studies, didn't do as well, and so it just fell by the wayside. But based on current literature and actually most of the available literature, you know, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose, and there are too many patients clearly uh, shown to be in fine V fib or in V fib in other leads. Where, they, where the uh, clinician, whether they be a paramedic or a physician, thinks they're in asystole uh, and doesn't shock them. So my bias, based on what's available in the literature, including uh, the recent article out of Salt Lake City, is to go ahead and shock asystole after giving the first or second dose of epinephrine. My only caveat would be If you have an ultrasound machine in the ED, uh, which most of us now do, just go ahead and put the probe on and make sure they're not in fine VF. That is not available to most EMS services at the present time. And so my recommendation for pre-hospital providers and those of us that write protocols for them is to go ahead and shock it. Try to confirm the diagnosis, oxygenate, epi, shock, high quality CPR and then give epi every three to five minutes. Uh, And my bias is in unwitnessed arrest after three or four doses of epinephrine to terminate the code. And, And that's assuming they don't have any return of spontaneous circulation and never develop a truly shockable rhythm other than the asystole that we've decided to shock early on.
1: Great, thank you. And it doesn't seem like there's a big downside in shocking someone truly an asystole when you look at missing someone that's in fine VFib overall with the numbers.
2: You know, when you think about the people that recover from asystole, it's uh, less than 1% and at least 50% of those will be profoundly brain damaged and go on to die. If you can early on convert fine VF, there's a much better outcome. And so Unfortunately, this like most of ACLS is not well studied. You know, people are dying every day. People are arresting every day. Young, middle-aged and old people are dying and we're not studying them like we should. Should we shock asystole? Should we be giving epinephrine? How many doses? Just not studied. And it's really, unfortunately with uh, in this era of research needs to have informed consent, it's really hard to do the right studies. So more people die than they should.
1: What do you think the future role of ultrasound is in the field? And I know in my hospital we're also doing TEEs during cardiac arrest. Do you see a role for trans trans-thorac- thoracic echoes as well as transesophageal at some point in the future in the field?
2: So I appreciate you interviewing me, even at my very advanced age. When I started in EMS, we were so excited. We had dextro sticks in the field, and we could see what a patient's glucose was. And we took a basic EMS service and made it advanced so they could defibrillate. You know, we have AEDs now. We don't give it a second thought when someone saves a life in the airport, and they've never even... Uh, learned how to do high quality CPR and they shock someone and bring them back to life. Ultrasound used to be the purview of ultrasonographers trained in radiology or cardiology. And over time, emergency physicians do amazing things with ultrasound. Uh, I, my residents, uh, it, its I don't know any body part they don't ultrasound. I'm getting ready for them to ultrasound x-rays and EKGs. So as ultrasound has really permeated emergency medicine, it's beginning to be out in EMS. And I think because high quality ultrasonography with advanced reading requires a lot of mileage, I think teaching paramedics how to do this and then transmitting uh, to their base station to have someone look at the scan with them really is probably gonna be the way ultrasound goes to most services. But in CPR, you could see ultrasound easily being done by a paramedic and saying they see no cardiac activity or they see tamponade uh, in PEA. So I think it'll be an exciting time over the next decade. The other thing is the cost. Ultrasound used to be killer expensive. And now, you know, like you go to a, a, if you're on an expressway or turnpike or interstate, Like in in the men's and ladies' rooms, you can put in coins and they give you ultrasound machine now. The cost is just going down. By the way, that was an attempted humor. I don't think they have them yet.
1: Perfect, okay. So we are different ages, but I was working in EMS when the dogma was tourniquet as a last resort. And I remember a new medic coming in and it was like, they were saying, we should do this earlier in our protocols. And I'm like reading through things and kind of resistant to this change. And I know kind of from that background, there can be difficulties in implementing updates to protocols and uh, getting the latest education out to crews. Is your service shocking empirically and asystole now? And have you had any troubles with the implementation?
2: So based on uh, the recent article, uh, all of our paramedics uh, were in service about a month ago, and uh, this month, we've implemented shocking asystole. Thus far, there have been no problems. We have had a couple of cases where they didn't shock. But you know, this always happens when we roll out a new protocol. We make them feel bad. We, we, I, I think guilt is a great motivator. We talk about how that. You no, know, I mean, we just encourage them to do it. And then, Once it's inculcated, it'll just become routine. It's just so easy to do. And unlike bicarbonate or calcium in cardiac arrest, I don't think it has much of a downside. And we wanna do something to bring people back. And this is a physical action. And then all kidding aside, it really is a crowd pleaser. And so people see that the paramedics are trying everything they can, including shocking the patient.
1: And maybe that's something to grab as a last ditch effort over things like bicarb and calcium, which is a good kind of shift. Um, you looked at studies in adults and pediatrics with sodium bicarb, um, talk about the role of bicarb and cardiac arrest.
2: You know, you mentioned tourniquets and I was trained at a time that tourniquets were like the worst thing. Uh, and then based on Israeli studies, based on, uh, what happened with, uh, IADs in uh, two wars now. What we see is they save limbs, they save lives rather than causing limb loss. And now we aggressively use tourniquets. If one doesn't work, put on a second one higher up. Bicarbonate and calcium were drugs that were used in the 70s and 80s. We know that intravenous bicarbonate, a base, in low flow states and cardiac arrest, creates an intracellular acidosis, and decreases survival. It's hyperosmolar and shouldn't be used. Similarly, calcium, which people just love, increases uh, neuronal destruction, increases free radical reaction, and in cardiac arrest, not due to hyperkalemia, not due to an overdose, is really deleterious. There's one pediatric study which shows a 30% decrease in the likelihood of survival and being neurologically intact, we need not to be giving these drugs.
1: And when you look at the literature, I'm guilty of using calcium when I'm sure it's not been indicated in kind of a last ditch effort. Um, When you're looking at the literature, do they hash out presentations that were just so severe that then the drugs were given in this last ditch? Yeah, I mean, we wanna
2: do something. We want to save lives and you know well, we haven't tried calcium yet we haven't given bicarb yet they've been down a while we want to do things what we ought to do is manage people's hypertension and lifestyle and lipids. Uh, We ought to be selling them on lower fat foods and eating less fried foods when you have a cardiac arrest it's kind of like the end for most of us. Yes. We save patients that have acute VF arrests due to myocardial infarction and get them to the cath lab and reopen them. PEA to a reversible cause, we can save that. But patients that are down that don't have a reversible cause, that don't have hypoxia, tension pneumothorax, a volume problem, tamponade, or a toxic metabolic problem that we can correct, hyper-K with calcium, hypothermia with heat and rewarming, Hyperthermia by cooling them, someone who's profoundly dehydrated, tanking them up, someone with blood loss, getting some blood in them in, uh, and getting them to the OR. But other than that, they're dead. And that's why patients in asystole need aggressive care early on and the, and the code needs to be terminated. And for PEA, if it's not slow and wide or with a sine wave, if there's no suggestion of hyperkalemia, it's time not to give them calcium, it's time to decide whether we ought to terminate the code or not.
1: So let's talk about some other things that may help, especially early on. You look at several studies um, with antiarrhythmics. Can you talk a little bit about that and the kind of implementation of a pit crew approach for an efficient cardiac arrest resuscitation?
2: That's That's a great question, Caitlin. And it really encompasses two things. One the best run codes have better outcomes. High quality CPR going 100 to 120, two inches down, minimizing interruptions, allowing full recoil and not hyperventilating. If we do that, we increase survival by 50% for those codes that don't get it. Similarly, using a pit crew where people know what they're doing and function much like uh, in an auto race where everyone knows their role and they get it done. Antiarrhythmics given 20 to 25 minutes into a code are worthless. We need to get them in sooner, and it needs to be done by having an expert team leader, where she or he is looking at the clock. And from the studies that you've seen, whether it be the Alive trial, the Arrest trial, which compared uh, uh, lidocaine with amiodarone, I almost use the word uh or uh, the current reviews, we're giving antiarrhythmics just way too late when they're not going to have any effect. Uh, in the early trial comparing AMIO to lidocaine to placebo, where there was not really a significant difference, what the authors noted was that when the, ana- when the antibiotics, when the antiarrhythmics were given early in the code, especially witness arrests, there was a significant, statistically significant percentile increase in survival neurologically intact. And that's what we need to pay attention to.
1: Do you want to talk a little bit about pad positioning and defibrillation, double sequential defibrillation?
2: So I want to say that just like shocking a person with one defibrillator, shocking with two is a double crowd pleaser. And so I don't want to come across as against it. Pretty soon we're going to be talking about three or four at a time. Uh, maybe linking patients and defibrillators. Uh, Early on, when Lown began defibrillation, it was anterior or posterior. And as we got paddles, we moved to anterolateral. There have been a couple of studies, and I want to say that it looks like either position is fine. But after two to three shocks, switch, if you've been doing anterolateral, which most people start with, If someone hasn't converted in three, switching to anterior-posterior. In the double sequential study that I like the most, they compared staying anterolateral to switching to anterior-posterior to double sequential and switching from AL to AP or double sequential was equal. And so I think what all the studies are saying right now until there's a better one, and there will be, whatever is not working, try something different. It doesn't, I'm so sorry for interrupting, doesn't cost any money, it's easy to do when you're changing at the two minute interval, uh, when your rescuers are changing, just turn someone on their side, slap the pad on the back, put them back over or put on two more pads.
1: Do you have your crews empirically connect two different defibrillators, one in the AP, one in the AL. No, and then
2: no, it, it, I, I see where you're going. What we do is we use a single defibrillator. We put it anterolateral. It's the quickest, easiest, fastest thing to do. VF that has not responded to three shocks is, by definition, refractory ventricular fibrillation. And patients should have an antiarrhythmic, and they should have the pads go from AL to AP, and then we continue the code.
1: All right. You mentioned considering beta blockers, and I get that your cardiac function can't get a lot worse when you're in CPR, but I get a little worried about negative ionotropy. What are the patients that you consider beta blockading?
2: So there'll be more literature on this. There are just some pilot studies, but it's obvious that patients that are in refractory VF are in an electrical storm. If you haven't quieted them with either the lidocaine or the amiodarone then, and you've given them epi, and my bias is to give only one dose of epi in VF. Why not try the opposite of exciting their heart? Why not try quieting their heart? In one pilot study looking at Esmolol, they were able to get a survival rate of 50%. I, I like that kind of survival rate.
1: That's impressive.
2: And so it's, it was a pilot study. There's now a blinded study that should report hopefully in this year or next. And that's my bias, is if I have someone in the emergency department and we've shot them three or more times and they're still in VF, why not try to quiet the heart with esmolol? So uh, I think the best results, if we're really talking state-of-the-art, is uh, after three shocks, being able to go to the cath lab with mechanical CPR and trying to open the coronary artery. That is rarely available, but the Minneapolis data uh, shows just remarkable success doing it with an ECMO team and an ECLS approach to cardiac arrest. That to me is state of the art. Are there any
1: Papers or research that you wish you had seen come out in this last year that you could be talking about?
2: So I just added it, and I know I didn't give it to you because your slide said is last week's. Um, I just added an article that I'm gonna be talking about tomorrow. Actually, two articles. One is an older article, which says in medical arrests in the field, work them in the field for 15 or 20 minutes, that those patients transported too early didn't do as well. Well, a paper just came out on trauma care. And what they found is move them quick. That's somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes was optimal for unseen time. Get them to the hospital, get them to the trauma center. And where in medical arrests, 20 minutes or longer improved survival in trauma 20 minutes or longer decrease survival in a straight line upward. So medical arrests, stay on the scene, stabilize, secure your airway, give your drugs, make decisions on termination. Trauma, move.
1: Treat them with diesel, as we used to say.
2: Absolutely, you know, scoop and run which is wrong in medical arrests, is the right thing to do in, in uh, level one and even some level two trauma.
1: Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you spent today to go over some of the recent EMS articles. And I did want to ask just one more question, maybe a little bit um, no, self-interested.
2: never convicted. <laughs>
1: But since many of the listeners are residents, um, I did want to just ask what are the factors that you think are most important in considering an EMS fellowship?
2: So I think EMS obviously is a really exciting subspecialty of emergency medicine. And just as I advise medical students to find a place they feel like the people at that location are people that they'd like to join that family, that they feel comfortable with, that they wanna learn from. I think there are a lot of good EMS fellowships out there, but there are so many of them are so very different. I mean, all of us in EMS are a little sick, uh, some more than others. And ever since I started this fourth medicine, I'm, I'm much better now, but I think interviewing talking to the different people that lead or help lead the program, you really find that's someone who, I'd like her to be my mentor. Ooh, that group, I just just didn't click with. I mean, just go where you feel you'd like to be part of. That's the best fellowship. You know, look at the city, look at the number of runs, look at the mix of trauma and blunt, look at how much peds they do, whether you're interested in aeromedical uh, rescue or not, whether you you want to be in austere environments, whether you want to do more disaster, more public health, those are all variables. But in the end, after you've done all of the uh, work on this on the spreadsheet, go where you feel comfortable. And for those of us that either have a husband, a wife, kids, a significant other, or others, Go where your partner is going to be happy, too.
1: Great. Thank you so much.
2: It's a privilege. Good luck.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with AAEM RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine, residents, and students.